leaders ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of Israel. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks among the clans of Reuben? There were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Ta'anak by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought from their courses. They fought against Sisera. The torrent Kaishan swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kaishan, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horses' hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Meroz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer, indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil, a womb or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoiled of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck is spoil? So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for forty years. This is the word of the Lord. Last time we, we looked at Judges 4 as the, the tale of two women. We saw how Deborah and Jael took center stage. But tonight we have to t add the story of a third woman in order to better understand what is going on here. Sisera's mother, Deborah and Jael, 
are the three main characters in the song. Barak and Sisera play sort of supporting roles in, in the narrative of the, of the way the poem is written. Uh, Barak is named three times in the chapter. In all three instances, his name comes shortly or immediately after Deborah. Actually, you would never say Barak and Deborah any more than you would say Aaron and Moses. Sure, throughout the Bible, there are five times when Aaron is named first. All five instances are sort of genealogical type of lists where uh, it's pointing out that Aaron is the older brother of the two. But the other 66 times, yes, the other 66 times that Aaron and Moses are named together, Moses' name goes first. So the fact that Barak is named after Deborah throughout the poem makes it clear that he is subordinate to her in the same way that Aaron, though he's the high priest, he is subordinate to Moses in the, in the story of, of Moses and Aaron, in the same way Barak is subordinate to Deborah because she is the prophetess, she is the judge, he is the general who obeys her command. The, the song also uh, diminishes Barak in a way by, by saying that this takes place in the, in the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, and in the days of Jael. I mean, Deborah had prophesied, Barak does not get the glory for this victory. You think about Shamgar, the son of Anath, son of a, this is a, the son of a Canaanite war goddess. <laughs> um, this foreigner... His name, it's, oh, these are in the days of Shamgar. Who, who's Barak? Uh, well, he, Barak does not get the glory for this victory. The days of Jael. She's, it, that, that's, that's the line that should have been in the days of Barak had Barak been the one who received the glory for the victory. Also, I, I, so, you know, we see how you know, Barak is sort of given a subordinate role in the poem. Sisera is also named four times in the poem but always as the one upon whom others act. He's the one against whom the stars fight in verse 20. He's the one whom Jael struck in verse 26. He's the son of his mother in verse 28, and he's referred to in his mother's fond dream in verse 30. He's the one who is acted upon and spoken to and thought of by others, but he himself doesn't actually do anything in this song. Now, if, if all we had was this poem, then... We would, we would know that the Israelites had fought a battle with a Canaanite army led by Sisera. Barak and Deborah, sorry, Deborah and Barak, boy, how did I do that? Deborah and Barak were key figures leading Israel into battle. And also that not all of the tribes responded, uh, that there's some sort of meteorological event that intervenes in the battle, and Jael kills the enemy general. I mean, the prose account is rather necessary, which we heard last time, for giving us the details and the ordering of things. But the poetic account fills in certain details that the prose account had omitted, because, as we saw last time, the, the text assumes that you know the song. This, this song is, I mean, the, the Hebrew of this song is very ancient. Uh, it's one of the oldest texts we have uh, just by, by, by virtue of the vocabulary and the, and the grammar. So it's, it's pretty clear that this song came first, which, I mean, if Deborah sang this song, then this song came first. The book of Judges is obviously written sometime after uh, this song was written. And so the, the assumption is that you know this song. And in case you've, you've ever wondered, so why is the song of Deborah not in the book of Psalms? 
Well, actually, Psalm 68 quotes from the Song of Deborah. There's part, of the song, uh, part of the Song of Deborah is actually in Psalm 68, and in a sense, Psalm 68 winds up taking on certain pieces of, uh, which we'll, we'll sing later. But um, verse 2 tells us, opens with a, with a, a curious m- note that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Now, you, you, you might wonder, is this being ironic? Because last time we saw that Barak wasn't all that eager to take the lead. Uh, but we should not take this ironically too quickly. In fact, when you look at what happens when Barak listens to Deborah, when he says, okay, I will do what you say. You're going to come with me? Okay, I will do what you say. He's able to go get 10,000 men and take them to Mount Tabor. So the leaders took the lead. The people followed. They actually did do what Deborah said. They did do what the Lord called them to do. So, sure, this, we saw it last time that there, I, I, have, I have very little sympathy for the view that, that, sees, that sees sort of this whole story as a rebuke against Israel for their failure to do what God says and the rebuke against the men. And so God was forced to raise up a woman because there were no men. That's not the way the text tells the story. And so we, should, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't follow that way of t- telling the story without the text telling us to go that way. Because Deborah is giving thanks that the leaders did take the lead, the people did follow, at least many of them did. Now, is there, is there some uh, irony, sarcasm? We'll hear, we'll hear later in the song, not all Israel showed up. There, there are certain tribes that don't make it uh, at all. And, and while Barak may have been slow, he did take the lead. There were 10,000 who were willing to follow Deborah and Barak, on the seemingly suicidal mission to Mount Tabor. Remember, Mount Tabor is isolated. There's a plane around it. The iron chariots in the plane will cut you down. As, and if you, if you stay up on the, you can stay on the mountain, they can't reach you, you're fine. But you've got to come down someday. And when you come down, they will tear you to pieces. Now, so, sometimes, you may, you may have noticed that sometimes... God looks at our very partial obedience and he rewards it richly. Now, which I know sometimes we focus on the other one because there are times in scripture where partial obedience is, is rebuked because it falls short of what God really said to do. But what's the key distinction? The key distinction, and you see this, for instance, in a very, in a, in a somewhat different way, think, think of Zechariah and, and Mary in the, in the Gospel of Luke. Both of them say very similar things. How will I know this? How shall this be? One of them gets rebuked, the other one gets praised. <laughs> Why? Well, because in the case of Zechariah, it, it appears that sort of his, his question only way to explain it is his question was in a sense motivated by a certain amount of unbelief her question seems to be motivated by I'm a virgin how am I supposed to get pregnant I don't understand this so it's not it's not unbelief it's more of a 
can you explain how this is supposed to work? Whereas in Zechariah's case, it's, it's, so, so this is where, this is where the God who knows the heart is pleased, well, to, I'll, let me put it this way, our, our confession has a lovely way of saying this in chapter 16, verse, uh, section 6 of the, of the confession. Notwithstanding, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. What do you see in the Song of Deborah? Was, was Israel perfect in their response? No. But did the leaders take the lead and actually lead Israel to the battle that God, and go where God said to go? Yes. Did the people follow? Not, not all of them, but did they follow? Yes. And so the Song of Deborah, in praising Israel for their obedience, should not be taken as being less than what it is. They actually showed up. They actually did what God said to do. Bless the Lord! I mean, the, and I, I say this to encourage you, because what, there are times when you are, you, you may feel, as I do, very imperfect and half-hearted in your obedience. But when God calls you to do it, do you do it? Do you show up? I mean, that's why I love that our confession puts it this way, because, yes, it's not as though our good works are unblameable and unreprovable. It's rather that God looks on them in Jesus, and he's pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. The song of Deborah and Barak blesses the Lord that the leaders led and the people followed. Now, uh, the Song of Deborah is is the only uh, song in the book. Uh, this is a song of praise. And it, it singles out Deborah the prophetess as a shining beacon of light in the darkness of those days. Verse 3 lays out a theme that will recur throughout the song. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Even the, the foreign kings and princes are called to to listen to Deborah's song. Verses 4 and 5 then speak of the coming of of the Lord, the coming of Yahweh. But Yahweh is said to have come from Seir, a mountain in Edom. It's like, wait, when you came from Seir, why why does it speak of God coming from Edom? This actually, uh, you find this running throughout the, the Old Testament many times. It's, it's rooted in the blessing of Moses in De- Deuteronomy 33, where he speaks of, of how God comes as a, has king over Israel, that, that God arose and came from Edom, he comes from Seir. It will also be used in the Song of Habakkuk, chapter 3, uh, as God comes from Edom, the, the region where Israel rebelled at Kadesh. So why, why does God said to come from Seir? Why from Edom? Part of this is, when you think about the Exodus, it's the, hist- it's the route in which God brings Israel into the land around Edom from the south and east. And the south and east play an important role in the coming of God in these songs. So Edom is on the east side of, uh, 
of the of the rift valley as it were and so that's it's thought of as being in the east and and god's judgment often comes from the east god planted the garden in the east the east wind is the wind of judgment uh, and several passages refer to the east wind as the wind of the lord and for the purposes of this song it's important to note the sun also rises in the east and the song will conclude with the friends of god rising in might like the sun also edom is in the south and this is where uh, the picture of, of the Lord coming from the south is partly a counterbalance to the Canaanite view of, of Baal, the, the Canaanite god, residing in the north on Mount Zaphon. So Baal comes from the north, Yahweh comes from the south, and there's the collision of, of the gods in the middle, you might say. Baal is the, the storm god in Canaanite mythology. So when, when Yahweh comes from Seir... Notice what happens. The earth trembles. The heavens drop. The clouds drop water. Baal isn't the storm god. Yahweh, the Lord, is the storm god. He is is the god of all creation. So God, our God, Yahweh, does precisely what Baal is supposed to do, you might say. Now, this is also the first clue to the puzzle that we saw last time. Last time we heard Deborah say, does not the Lord go before you? And then Barak charges Sisera. And you would think, okay, you're charging down the mountain onto the plain, and now the iron chariots come and mow you down. Except Sisera jumps out of his chariot and starts running away. We didn't hear in chapter 4 why that was. Why would Sisera jump out of his chariot and start running away when he's got a infantry attacking him (laughs) well now we find out the heavens dropped water and now that plane is a mud pit so when the plane becomes a mud pit your chariots aren't very useful Yahweh is the true storm God all mountains even Mount Sinai quaked before the Lord before Yahweh the God of Israel the mention of Sinai in verse 5 reminds us of how the Lord spoke to Israel before he brought them to the land, coming, as you may recall, from the east across the Jordan into the land. And now the mountains themselves are trembling and quaking before the coming of the Lord. Now, Psalm 68 quotes directly from Judges 5, 4, and 5, And indeed, Psalm 68 will go on to speak of how the Lord gives the word. And there's a few somewhat obscure passages in Psalm 68 which are illuminated if you you notice that Psalm 68 is reflecting on the Song of Deborah uh, when it refers to how the women who announce the word, the news, are a great host. Hmm, could this be a reference to Deborah? Could this be a reference to Jael? You know, the kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. And when you think about Jael and the importance of the word spoil later at the end of the, of the Song of Deborah, you start realizing, oh, Psalm 68 is talking about the plundering and spoiling of Sisera when the women, women at home are dividing the spoil, among other things. But then in, in verses 6, 6 to 8, uh, 
Barak and Deborah, for that matter, are passed over for a different set of heroes. The days of Shamgar, the days of Jael. Shamgar, the son of Anat, Anat, the, the consort of Baal. She's the warrior goddess. It's a fitting, fitting image for this song. But the, the deliverers of Israel in this period are not Deborah and Barak. The deliverers of Israel are Shamgar and Jael. They are the ones who receive the glory for the deliverance of God's people. Now, the, the key word here is ceased. The highways ceased. Village life ceased. All ceased until Deborah arose. The Sisera's tyranny and, and dominion over the region causes, causes the Israelite villagers to retreat and sort of disappear from ordinary village life. Until... Until I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. It's worth noting that she's not referred to as the deliverer. She's referred to as the mother in Israel. She's the faithful prophetess who fearlessly speaks the word of the Lord. She arose, and here she she chooses the word, she could have used the word judge. She's referred to as, as the one who judged Israel in the previous chapter. But she refers to herself as a mother in Israel. Now, mother in Israel is not used as a, just sort of speaking of, that she's just, she's just a mother. It's rather, she is, a, a mother in Israel is used one other time in scripture in Second Samuel 20, when the wise woman of Abel saves her city, and she refers to her city as a mother in Israel, due to its great reputation for wisdom and peacemaking. So she is the agent through whom God cares for and nurtures his people. It's, it's important to recognize that judges does not portray sort of an egalitarian culture. She is not a judge like the other judges. She is not a, a warrior who leads Israel into battle like Othniel or Gideon. But this shouldn't surprise us. Women are not men. Men are not women. Deb, how does Deborah lead? How does she, how does she speak? She's a prophetess. How does she lead? As a mother in Israel. This, that she, she is one who, who leads, in a sense, you could say, because she's a woman. It's not sort of in spite of the fact that she's a woman. She leads, and it's because of who she is as a woman that she leads the way she does. Now, um, in verse 8, there is a translation question. Um, it, the, the ESV says, when new gods were chosen. Um, it's, he chose God new ones. So the question is, is God supposed to be the subject or is God supposed to be the object? Um, so the ESV and the NIV both say that Israel chose new gods it could also be that God chose new ones, namely new leaders. And that, I think, actually makes a little more sense of what the text is doing. As God chooses new leaders, then war breaks out. Because this is, this is the point of there's no village life in Israel. Deborah is the prophetic leader of the resistance in the hill country. War is coming, but Israel has no weapons. Notice the rest of verse 8. 
Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? Yeah, you know, think about it. You got iron chariots down on the plain, and you have no iron. We've heard about the weapons that Israel's using. There's, there's an ox goad. There's a, a, a tent peg. There's, anyway, we'll, we'll find out in the book of Samuel that, you know, Saul and Jonathan have swords, and that's it. Israel has no iron. We've, we've talked about the late Bronze Age collapse briefly at times, but one of the things that's happening at the end, end of the Bronze Age is iron is coming. And as other cultures have iron, Israel has no iron. How are they supposed to defend themselves against iron swords? How are they supposed to defend themselves against iron chariots when all they have basically is wood and a little bit of bronze? You're not going to do very much there. If all you have is ox goads and tent pegs, you'd be tempted to think you've got no future. But then I arose as a mother in Israel. A mother in Israel will call all Israel to trust God even against overwhelming odds. Deborah is a mother not because she bears children, but because she nurtures the people of God and speaks the word of the Lord to the people of God. We often speak of the new birth, and rightly so. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Deborah is a mother in Israel because of the way that she bears spiritual children, as it were. She is one who, as we saw last time, she's never portrayed as preaching in the liturgical assembly. In Israel, that always involves the sacrifices. But she is a prophetess who proclaims the word of the Lord and nurtures the people of God and leads them in the way of life. Now, verses 9 through 11 then echo the language we saw in verses 2 and 3, um, bringing the first part of our text to their conclusion. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. The, this parallels back to verse 2. But now it's those commanders who offer themselves willingly among the people. And there's again the bless the Lord language. Verses 10 and 11 then parallel verse 3, where Deborah had called on the kings and princes at first to listen to her song. Now she calls on the merchants. Remember, Israelite villagers have stayed away from the highways. They've been in the, going by the, 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 by, the byways, the little paths to the hills. But these Canaanite merchants ply their trade, riding their exquisite donkeys and walking along the way. But now, she says, the musicians will sing of the righteous triumphs of Yahweh and the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. So we now speak of the righteous triumphs of Yahweh and his villagers. And that's what this, the main central section of the poem is all about. And it starts with the righteous triumphs of the villagers. Verse 12 also starts with Deborah and Barak. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in song, the prophetic voice. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam, the the military, judges, warriors uh, language. She is the prophet. He is the deliverer, right? Well, sort of. Then 
down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. This, this is a, a great sort of opening line that is, makes it sound like we're going to now hear this, the, sort of the roll call of the people of God, which we do. But the roll call winds up a little bit mixed in terms of some respond, some don't. Some are sitting around wondering what to do. There are three groups. There are the volunteers in verses 14, 15. Ephraim, Benjamin, Machir, who's the eldest son of Manasseh, Zebulun, Issachar, and especially high praise for Issachar. <laughs> they were faithful to Barak. You know, they, they came with Deborah. They were faithful to Barak. And into the valley, they rushed at his heels. They were right there with him all along. But then also are the resistors in verses 15 to 17. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. <laughs> Why did you st sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart, uh, which suggests they never actually quite got around to showing up. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. They didn't quite show up. But then Deborah gives the award to the last two. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. They were especially brave in the battles. Now, note that of this all the tribes of Israel here, there's, there's, there's three missing. Levi, who wasn't really expected to go to war, but then Judah and Simeon are missing. Why is Judah absent? Now, it may simply be that with the conflict so far in the north, Judah and Simeon couldn't have gotten there in time, and so they didn't even send, send word to them, possibly. But the author may also be showing some internal divisions in Israel. Some tribes refused to come. Others weren't even invited. Already long before the time of David, Judah is somewhat isolated from his brothers. The other possibility is that Judges normally praises Judah, so the failure of Judah is passed over in silence. But in that case, the silence is rather deafening, because where's Judah? When it, when it matters. But whichever way you take it, it's clear that even this great triumph is marred by division and poor communication in Israel. There's a lack of military and political cohesion. Some tribes refuse to sacrifice their own interest for the good of the nation. So the, the righteous triumphs of God's villagers are a mixed bag. Some were faithful, some weren't, and some aren't even mentioned. Now, then we turn to Yahweh's own triumph, verses 19 and 20. And, and this, is, this is a cosmic victory, not just a cunning battle plan. The, the kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Ta'anak by the waters of Megiddo. Notice that, uh, notice that Sisera gets glossed over again. When it's time to speak of, of who does the fighting, the kings of Canaan get mentioned. Which kings? Well, I mean, Sisera obviously is the leader of this group, but let's not mention him, because in this poem, Sisera doesn't do anything. <laughs> so, we'll just mention the kings of Canaan. 
from, and that they, they got no spoils of silver. This is foreshadowing here. From heaven, the stars fought in their courses. They fought against Sisera. Now, Megiddo was a major fortress in the valley of Jezreel. Ta'anak was five miles southeast. So Sisera apparently came up towards Mount Tabor from the south, and they came to, to the brook Kaishan. Um, and by the way, uh, the, the raging torrent Kaishan uh, is properly referred to as a wadi, which is it's most most of the time most of the time it's dry, and it's only occasionally that it, it, there's a lot of water in it, and that's only when there's it's a, basically a flash flood type. So this is he's not thinking of the Kaishan as a problem because. You can just kind of ride right over it. There's no water in it. No big deal. But then the heavens opened and the stars fought for Israel. A thunderstorm causes flash flooding that sweeps the chariots away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kaishan, sweeps them away. Now we understand chapter 4, verse 15, where we are told that the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots. Like Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea, Sisera's chariots are swamped by the waters. The waters above were poured out as the stars fought from the heavens. The waters beneath surged forth as the little bitty Kaishan suddenly floods and the chariots are washed away. Once again, Yahweh is the true storm god who shows up to fight for his people. Then we turn to a curse and a blessing. Verse 23, curse Meroz, says the angel of the Lord, curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. So the angel of the Lord, the messenger of Yahweh, declares a curse upon Meroz for failing to come to the help of the Lord. Who's Meroz? What's Meroz? Um, Seems to be a town nearby. Uh, but why does the... I mean, we've, we've heard that you know, several tribes didn't show up. Why does this town get the curse? The angel of the Lord usually shows up in cases of idolatry. We heard that earlier in Judges chapter 2. So who's, what's Meraz doing here? I would suggest that there's a connection with Heber. We saw Heber last time. Heber is Jael's husband. Heber was of the Kenites, the descendants of Moses' father-in-law. And we heard last time that he had entered an alliance with, with Sisera. If you're entering an alliance with Sisera, this is not just a political alliance. This is also going to be a religious alliance. You're basically saying, I will, I will join you and worship your gods. And so... This is, this is where it, it seems likely that Meroz and Heber are connected in this, um, which is why I, I would suggest the, the curse of Meroz and the blessing of Jael are side by side for a reason. The curse is on those Israelites and this, particularly this Israelite town, probably including Heber and his, his, his people. They have identified with Sisera, they have identified with the oppressors of God's people. And so the curse of Meroz is against those who refuse to fight against the Lord's enemies, indeed those who identify with the Lord's enemies. Stephen Marshall, one of the Westminster Divines, preached a sermon on this text uh, 
the curse of Meroz, against those who sided with King Charles in the English Civil War. We should be careful how we use this text, but it is certainly appropriate to consider, see this text as, as speaking a curse on those who refuse to join in spiritual warfare against the Lord's enemies. Those who identify, who, they, they may be, they may name, name the name of Christ, but yet they are themselves actually working for the Lord's enemies and against the Lord. There is a curse on those who refuse to seek the kingdom of God and seek other kingdoms instead. But in contrast, most blessed of women be Jael. Uh, you may hear the echoes. Another women will, woman will also be considered blessed. You know, when Mary is you know, pronounced blessed. But Jael is pronounced blessed for killing the enemy general, for crushing the head of the serpent. This is where she is pronounced blessed for what she does in, uh, in, which at first may sound sort of like, but isn't she violating the law of hospitality? I mean, he seeks refuge and now she's putting a spike through his head. Um, but it's also been pointed out that the laws of hospitality, uh, what were, were, had been violated actually by Sisera in two ways. He seeks refuge in a woman's tent, which is, I mean, he, obviously it's a good hiding place because you're not supposed to do that. Um, if, if he's coming to Haber's tents, then to go, to go to Haber, but he seeks refuge in the tent of Jael, which in a nomadic culture, the wife's tent is a separate tent from the husband's tent. And so to go to the wife's tent actually suggests certain inappropriate behavior on Cicero's part, which, and the reason why we are fully justified in thinking of the sort of the sexual connotations in this is because the song will end with Cicero's mother thinking precisely what that Cicero is probably taking so long because he's got a womb or two. Um, And so actually the fact that Cicero ends up between her legs is intended to be highly ironic. A soldier would, on the campaign would generally only enter a woman's tent for one reason. And in the end he gets there, sort of. She hammered, she crushed, she shattered, she pierced. The author kind of enjoys the picture, but actually this, and he falls actually not dead. When it says that he, between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still, between her feet he sank, he fell, where he sank, there he fell, spoiled, plundered. Doesn't use the word dead. He had come seeking spoil in the battle, but now he has been despoiled of manhood and of life. And this is where understanding our third woman is, is helpful for resolving the, the picture of what we're seeing. Because here is, here is a mother concerned, worried about her son. Uh, notice the contrast between Jael, the, the rustic nomad, and Sisera's mother, the, the noble woman. Why is Sisera taking so long? Her, her wisest princesses, or actually her commanders, uh, ad, advise her, and, and indeed she herself comes to the conclusion, ah, 
Sisera is enjoying the spoil, fine clothing, and a, and a pair of wombs. Notice not just a pair of women, but specifically a pair of wombs. They are simply described in sexual reproductive terms. He's taking so long because he's enjoying himself. Now, notice the language of plunder and spoil in verse 30. The word spoil occurs four times. And that's why the translation in verse 27 is so important. When he falls, spoiled. He didn't simply fall dead before Jael. He fell, he fell spoiled, plundered. You see the, the contrast between Israel's mother and Sisera's mother. Deborah celebrates the triumphs of the Lord and praises those who honor him. Sisera's mother celebrates the, the debauchery of her son. Sisera's mother is here to, as a reminder that women are not inherently more pure than men. Not all of the women in this song are sort of honorable women who should be celebrated. Sisera's mother was rejoicing at the thought that he was out raping women and plundering. I mean, wait, how, how could a mother want that for her son? Judges 4 and 5 do not call us to celebrate women in general. Judges 4 and 5 call us to celebrate those women who fear the Lord, those women who are the friends of the Lord. May all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. Because the Lord is the divine warrior who arises, who by his command, the, the stars above and the kaishan below, the heavens above and the waters beneath, go to battle against Sisera. And, and that's where, as we saw last time, we need more women like Deborah, more women like Jael, who believe the Lord, trust the Lord. And that's where, that's where here you have these two women in, in very different situations. Jael, her, her husband's an unbeliever. Not just an unbeliever. Her husband seems to be under the curse of Meroz. Her husband has, has allied himself with Sisera, has joined himself to the enemies and oppressors of God's people. And yet, because she remains faithful to the Lord in the midst of such trying circumstances, she finds herself in the providence of God at just the right place at just the right time with just the right tools at hand to be able to crush the serpent's head. Now, the Apostle Paul tells us that, that God will soon crush Satan under your feet. We oftentimes think of Jesus as the one who crushes the serpent's head. Oh, yes. In, at, at the cross, Jesus crushes the serpent's head in, that, in a very definitive way. And yet, that doesn't mean the story's over yet. The crushing of the serpent's head is continuing to happen through what God is doing in you. That God will soon crush Satan under your feet. That you continue to be part of this story of the crushing of the serpent's head. That's where, it, and, and you do this every time when you are doing battle against sin. When you take up, when you take up your, your, your warfare, your spiritual warfare in fighting against, you know, when our, our weapons are not against flesh and blood. We don't, we don't use ox goads and, and, and tent pegs <laughs> very often uh, in the Christian life for, for destroying. But, 
Other, you know, but if, honestly, if there was, you know, there are times in the Christian life where sort of the, C.S. Lewis in the, in the Space Trilogy does point out that there are times when there's sort of spiritual warfare may get physical, when there may be times when you actually have to take a certain action in order to you know, f- physically push aside what uh, Martin Luther would, would, would you know, sometimes feel that Satan was so present in, sort of a, in, in the temptation that he, he, you know, he'd pick up his inkwell and throw it, throw it at the devil. You know, you know, there's, the, there's the ink blot at the, uh, at the wall at the Wartburg where it, it's allegedly the, where the inkwell hit the wall. Um, that may be true, actually. Wouldn't surprise me at all. But um, so, so that's where sometimes taking bodily action may be part of this, um, but very, very rarely will it involve ox goads and tent pegs. Um, but our spiritual warfare is to be carried out as what are we, what are we, what are we doing in the Christian life? We are part of what God is doing in crushing the serpent's head in that the kingdom of God might grow in advance. That means that in your, in your everyday work, the way in the, in, in your everyday labors, whether it's in, you know, you, you can in the way that you interact with those around you, in the way that you, the way that you respond to those who sin against you, the way that you, as we heard this morning, the way that you forgive those who have, who are indebted to you, that's, that's part of what God is doing in crushing the serpent's head and bringing about his kingdom in every part of our lives. So let's pray and ask him to keep doing it. Oh Lord, our God, thank you for your righteous triumphs. Thank you for your mighty deeds. And we, when we hear of your deliverance of your people through through JL, through Deborah, we we thank you and praise you that that you have that you have raised up these women, and we pray that you would raise up many more, and we pray that indeed that all your enemies would perish, but that your friends would be like the sun as he rises in his might. May we have that that strength and confidence to walk before you, to live before you as, as those who are your friends, whom you call, no longer do you call us servants, but you call us friends because you have, you have befriended us in Jesus and you have made us part of, of your kingdom, your family, your, your new community in Jesus Christ, your son. Help us, we pray, and have mercy upon us. Strengthen us by your word and spirit. Strengthen us by, by your holy gospel that we might be strong in our daily labors to, to love you, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to, to live as those who belong to Jesus, that, that, we might, that we might seek first the kingdom of your son, that we might not run after the, the gods of this age. Help us, Lord, and, and preserve us from the curse of Meros that we would not come to the help of the Lord against the mighty. May we be those who, who hear your word and do that which you call us to do. Help us in our daily labors, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our communities, in our neighborhoods. Lord, help us to, to, to bear witness to Jesus 
in the way that we walk, in the way that we talk, in the way that we live before the watching world. And have mercy, O Lord, and call many to yourself. Call call those who walk in darkness to, to see the light of your Son, our Savior, that, that, that they might believe, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Help us to live this way. And be with us this, by your Holy Spirit, strengthening us day by day as we walk before you. In Jesus' name, amen.